1: The Bowery Boys episode 241, Edgar
2: Allan Poe in New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. To conclude our Bowery Boys Month of Mystery which we began just a couple weeks ago with the post-colonial murder mystery featuring Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, and then continued last week with our annual ghost story, a look at the spirits of Greenwich Village. Well, for our conclusion to this month of mystery, we bring you the biography of one of America's greatest writers, the master of horror, Edgar Allan Poe.
2: Poe, of course, was a trailblazing author who lived his life like so many of his characters, in a seemingly constant state of melancholy and longing. And very notably, several of Poe's most productive and important years in the 1830s and 1840s were spent right here in New York City. Now, this isn't a traditional biography because
1: Poe was a wanderer. And many cities in the United States make claims to being the home of Poe because he lived of several places.
2: Right. So today we'll be kind of concocting, I would say, a biographical sketch of Edgar Allan Poe, specifically where Poe intersects with New York City. Though we'll also be including obviously some poetry. Along
1: the way Yeah, we'll be spicing this one up to get, kind of keep with that mysterious tone that The past couple episodes have held While infusing his own words into the show
2: I'd, I'd say, Greg, that we're not averse to a verse <laughs> Or
1: two While taking you, of course, on a journey That will send us to Greenwich
2: Village, the Upper West Side, and the Bronx and several of these places are still around today. And at the end of the show, we'll obviously be mentioning places you can head off to in the city to experience a little bit of Poe on your own. Well, we've certainly
1: been raving about this show long enough. Ooh. So it's time. Quote
2: that nevermore, Greg. <laughs>
1: so dim the lights, find a comfy chair, and perhaps something warm to drink as we search for Edgar Allan Poe
0: in New York.
1: The following poem by Edgar Allan Poe appeared in print the year of his death, 1849. The name of the poem is El Dorado. Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, In sunshine and in shadow, Had journeyed long, singing a song, In search of El Dorado. But he grew old, this knight so bold, And o'er his heart a shadow. Fell as he found no spot of ground that looked, Like El Dorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountain of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. So
2: that poem, El Dorado was published the year of his death in 1849. Correct.
1: But the story of Edgar Allan Poe in New York actually begins on the year of his birth, 1809. He was just a few months old when he made his very first appearance in New York as part of a theatrical troupe. Oh. Performing at several theaters, but most notably the Park Theater, which was New York's first theatrical playhouse, which opened in, on Park Row in okay. 1798.
2: Down by today's City Hall.
1: Yeah. He was there, of course, because his parents were two married actors, Eliza Poe and David Poe, and they performed in a variety of different roles that summer. Now, Edgar had been born on January 19th, 1809 in Boston and was you know hanging out in the dressing rooms. His parents delighted audiences on stage, or at least one of them did, because Eliza, was the brilliant one. She had star quality. But David, father, however, was critically bashed, was a terrible actor, and a very troubled man. So that summer in 1809, David left the
2: family, never to be seen again. So Poe has left the year that he's born with his mother living the life of an acting family on the road. Yes, and for a time,
1: uh, Eliza toured the country with her young child, with her children, and performed on the stage, and had a very promising career. But by 1811, she was seriously suffering the effects of tuberculosis. By this time, she was in Richmond, Virginia, relying on the kindness of townsfolk to support her family. Unfortunately, Eliza Poe died on December 8th, 1811. Regrettably, she would be the first of many women in Edgar's life to die of tuberculosis, which would cast this pall over his creative ambitions throughout his entire life. At her death, he and his two siblings were sent to different families here in Richmond, Virginia.
2: So Edgar is only two years old here, and he's being sort of adopted by this family in Richmond, which I I forget that, Edgar Allan Poe is kind of known as a Southern writer. It's hard right? to... He has a yeah. Southern history. Well, we think of this image of him as being
1: Gothic mm-hmm. and morose, but he actually had a Southern accent for most of his life. Not a Bostonian accent. No, even though he was born there. No, he went to live with a Scottish merchant named John Allen, where he would get his middle name and wife Fanny. And he was schooled in the ways of being a young Southern gentleman. He lived quite well, as best as they could provide, although he was not actually adopted by the Allens. Mr. Allen even took Edgar to London to live for several years until the year 1820. Well, this all sounds like a very prosperous upbringing. Yeah, this period of his life definitely runs counter to a lot of perceptions we have of Poe. In fact, in school, he was very athletic, very popular. He was even a member of the Rifle Company, who in October of 1824 marched in a parade when the Marquis de Lafayette came into town.
2: Wow. So this is taking place during Lafayette's big triumphant tour through the United States in 1824. Yeah. I mean, a, a, they're celebrating the revolution.
1: Right. Isn't that amazing to keep put him in context at the tail end of mm-hmm. the lives of these founding fathers? In fact, he entered the University of Virginia in February of 1826, just four months after the death of that university's founder, a Thomas Jefferson. However, in school, his relationship with John Allen got very sour, largely due to the support and affection that Edgar didn't think he was receiving from Mr. Allen. And this only got worse when Fanny Allen, who had really been the one who was doting on Edgar his whole life, died in 1829, yet another tragic death by tuberculosis.
2: So a lot of sadness already. First, Uh he loses his, well, both of his parents, but his mother and then his adoptive mother... When does his story take him to New York? He would come to New York to live in the year 1831.
1: Now, a couple years before this, in 1829, Poe leaves Richmond to try to make a name for himself. And he goes to Boston and Baltimore. And during these journeys where he's trying to really find his voice, Mm -hmm. he actually publishes very small journals with very limited press runs. But these are his first stabs at being a poet.
2: So he already knew at this age, he's 20 years old here in 1829, and he knows uh he wants to be a poet and a writer. Yeah,
1: he knows these are where his talents lie, his creative juices are really flowing. So then he does something that's, I think, a little curious, and that is, he enters the U.S. Military Academy in West Point, the famed military academy, of course, on the Hudson River, which is just many miles north of New York City. Why is that curious? Well, (sighs) Imagine a world where he had completely succeeded at West Point, and there had been absolutely no issues, and he would have perhaps gone on to a profession in the military. Mm -hmm. However, instead, quarrels with his adopted father, here, John Allen, and a series of neglected responsibilities on his part led him to be discharged in March of 1831, and it's from there that he heads down south
2: to New York City. So he gets basically tossed out of West Point and, yeah. and heads to New York.
1: Yeah, but now he's he wants to be a writer, so that's a p- great place for him to go. So that spring, he lived, we don't know where exactly, but somewhere around that old parade ground and a farmhouse that became a way station known as Madison Cottage. All of that would be plotted out to become Madison Square Park. Now, he... He certainly made an impression on his friends up at West Point. Again, he has this, like, a jovial personality, at least at this point in, in his life. Uh, he actually collects money from his friends at West Point so that he may produce another book of poetry. It's like a GoFundMe campaign. <laughs> <laughs> all, yeah, exactly. Like, all your friends are giving you money because they want to they buy this book, right? So, there was a publisher named Elam Bliss. And, anyway, in 1831. They Bliss published poems by Edgar Allan Poe. You could have bought it for 75 cents, and it was dedicated to the U.S.
2: Corps of Cadets. So he succeeded. He put out a book. His, his old pals must have been thrilled. Actually, they were kind of disappointed. They thought it
1: was going to be like a funny book about West Point, like life in West Point in poem form. Uh-huh. And instead it had poems like Tamerlane, which is not funny at all. Oh, not what they expected. Not a, no, not at all. He left New York for a time and began working in Baltimore and then Richmond. The 1830s was a seemingly golden age to to work in publishing because you had penny press and periodicals and journals of all different stripes being published. Poe actually got work as an editor and eventually as a critic, and even managed to publish some of his short stories for the very first time during this period.
2: This period being the mid-1830s. Right. In fact, in
1: 1835, he got one of his most significant positions as a critic for the Southern Literary Messenger, where he, let's just say he gained a lot of confidence as a critic of other people's writing.
2: (laughs) And that's something that's really interesting about Poe. Throughout his career, he held other editorial positions. He was often employed as an editor Mm -hmm. or as a literary critic, even while he was writing poems or short stories. But throughout his career, he was paying his bills... By working with words. And that makes him unique in the history of American letters because he really goes down as the first major writer who supported himself purely through writing. Mm-hmm. And is pretty much the model for most writers in New York City today. Right. Even though he would throughout his life have moments where he doubted himself and ran off and tried to get a job, you know, in the army or someplace mm-hmm. else because he thought he needed to have a steady income.
1: I can relate to that, I think. Now, also during this period, he began living with his aunt, a woman named Maria Clem or Mariah Clem, and her daughter, Virginia. Now, there have been thousands of pages of analysis written about the relationship between 26-year-old Edgar Allan Poe and 13-year-old cousin, Virginia, who, and whatever their motivations were for what they were about to do, but in 1835, it is believed that they got married in a private ceremony when she was 13, and
2: then a public one in Richmond the following year in 1836. Okay, wait, she was 14, he was 27 at that time. hmm Was this kind of thing common? You know, let's just say it was
1: highly unconventional for the day. He actually had an unconventional relationship with both of these women. Mariah essentially served as Poe's agent. She went out during the day looking for writing
2: assignments for him. Which is fascinating. um, But quick question. Mariah or Maria? It's spelled M-A-R-I. I a Right, but I've heard
1: scholars pronounce it as Mariah. So why don't we just say Ms. Clem going forward? (laughs) Mrs. Clem. So Poe seemed so reliant on her Mm -hmm. that he may have married Virginia to prevent her from being married to another and essentially kind of losing them as a family unit. Interesting. Virginia, though, was eternally devoted to Poe her entire life through good times and bad and there were a lot of bad times, through poverty and unemployment, two concepts that were quite familiar with Poe in 1837 when he
2: and the Clems decided to move to New York City. And they would move, all of them, into an apartment at Waverly Place and 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village. And there they lived on one floor, uh, sharing their space with a very well-known bookseller at the time, a man named William Gowans, Poe had had some contact with other writers at the time, and his close proximity to his neighbor here, a bookseller, put him into a contact with a network of writers and booksellers in New York City. And really, he started networking, you know, for example, on April 2nd of 1837, attending a banquet for authors that was being thrown by booksellers to sort of celebrate the authors of New York.
1: Because by this time, he had a little bit more of a reputation and a cachet from the three or four years in which he has been published and, and well-read by New Yorkers.
2: He wasn't a complete unknown. So that's when he lived at Waverly Place in the village. But the history of the Poe family And their residences in New York is a bit complicated because (laughs) really (laughs) they move around a lot the finances get very tight at times they move to different apartments they live in boarding houses so you see a lot of contradictory information well and to
1: underscore what will be said a million times in this show they were not wealthy so they had to move around by necessity
2: Right. Money was one, but not the only reason that they would move around town. Now, later that year, they moved to another location at 113 and a half Carmine Street, also in the village. Uh, we know that Poe was struggling to find a, a job in editorial work somewhere at one of the city's newspapers or magazines. He continued reviewing books, writing short stories and poems. We do know that that was a harsh winter um, and that at some point Poe caught a really bad cold. This is the kind of detail we know, Greg. (laughs) We don't know exactly where he lived, but we know he caught a cold. Well, he was sick a lot, so it's not... That's true. Well, and the heating was bad. I mean, imagine like a bad winter in those quarters in the village. It set Poe off to the northern dispensary on Christopher Street, a building that still exists today, uh, where he sought treatment. And that's on Christopher Street, right next to
1: Christopher Park, the site of Stonewall National Monument.
2: Now, the next year, in 1838, he did put out another book called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. But this one, like the last, didn't really sell very well. And so, money being tight, Poe decided, again, to move the family outside of the city. So this was the first big chapter in New York coming to a close. They move off to Philadelphia in 1838. Now, He stayed outside the city from 1838 until 1844. During those six years, a lot happens in (laughs) Mm Poe's biography, in Poe's career and life as a poet and author. But let's just say here, with some taking some broad strokes, while they were in Philadelphia, Poe and his family struggled to keep themselves fed. Um, He briefly gave up on writing, you know, trying to find any other job that could provide a more constant income. But he came back strong. He wrote his literary criticisms and his own poetry and his own prose. He co-edited a magazine called Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, uh, for which he wrote stories, including his famed short story, The Fall of the House of Usher. A collection of his stories came out in 1840. And the next year, uh, he was named one of the editors of another magazine called Graham's, for which he wrote literary reviews and fiction, including The Murders of the Rue Morgue in April of 1841, a story in which he might have just invented the popular detective genre. That
1: story is popularly claimed to be the first detective fiction
2: ever written. And unfortunately, it was written in Philadelphia. (laughs) Now, the next year in 1842, his wife, Virginia, while she was singing, burst a blood vessel. And from that moment on, she would never really be fully healthy again. Meanwhile, Poe had difficulties with his publisher. He lost his job at his magazine, but he continued to write criticism and fiction, including in 1842, he wrote a story that was based on the sensational murder of Mary Rogers in New York City. Uh, his short story, The Murder of Marie Roget, which came out in 1842. And many years ago, I recorded a Bowery Boys podcast on the very subject
1: of this murder and Poe's connection to this crime and how he sculpted this fictional version of the murder. So
2: scroll back through your Bowery Boys <laughs> feeds and you can access that episode. So that takes us to 1842 and he's in Philly. Right. Right. And the next year, he starts contributing to another magazine out of Boston called The Pioneer, for which he wrote short stories such as The Telltale Heart and Lenore. So he's getting published far and wide here. And these are many of the classics that we know today.
1: and They're all being produced in this short period of time. And
2: the whole time, he's also trying to start his own magazine called Stylus. He does this throughout his entire career. He talks to other writers. He tries to raise money from publishers. And in moments of dejection, he also does things like in 1843, running off and starting to study law. Because again, he wanted more stable income.
1: Well, that could have also changed the story if he became Edgar Allan Poe Esquire.
2: (laughs) He didn't write for Esquire. (laughs) He could have. But when did he move back to New York? At what time? That was in April of 1844 when Poe and Virginia moved back to New York and they rented a room at 130 Greenwich Street. They were soon joined by Virginia's mother, Miss, who I'll call Mrs. (laughs) Clowns, along with Kate or Katerina, the cat.
1: He's now an established writer. So what is he doing here in New York, here on Greenwich Street?
2: Yes, he was an established writer, but it you know just because he was being published didn't mean that times were easy for him. He was still very much struggling. He was an editor at a newspaper called The Sunday Times, uh, and he was also writing dispatches that were carried in other newspapers. For example, he wrote pieces about his experience in New York for the Columbia spy of Columbia, Pennsylvania. Really, he wrote about New York. Do you happen to have an excerpt? Why, in fact, (laughs) I do, Greg. This is from 1844. Listen to how he describes this part of Manhattan that's north of the city at that point um, and over sort of near the East River. So I imagine around like Murray Hill and Mm -hmm. over by the East River. Quote, On the eastern or sound face of manhattan are some of the most picturesque sites for villas to be found within the limits of christendom these localities however are neglected unimproved the old mansions upon them principally wooden are suffered to remain unrepaired and present a melancholy spectacle of decrepitude in fact these magnificent palaces are doomed The spirit of improvement has withered them with its acrid breath. Streets are already, quote, mapped through them, and they are no longer suburban residences, but town lots. In some thirty years, every noble cliff will be a pier, and the whole island will be densely desecrated by buildings of brick with portentous facades of brownstone, or Brownstone, as the Gothamites have it. And was this published in his blog, Edgar Allan Poe's Vanishing New York? Yes, that was published on his blog, (laughs) Edgar Allan Poe's Vanishing New York. No, but much like writers today, Poe was looking around and seeing a city changing before his very eyes, and obviously in the 1840s with immigration really starting to kick in here the city having gone through a big boom from the opening of the Erie Canal the city was transforming and and streets were being mapped out cliffs were being erased from the landscape it must have been a fascinating time to be a writer but
1: should be noted that we've only alluded to so far that Poe had other struggles going on personal demons In particular, he had a growing problem with alcohol, most likely brought up as a way of medicating through mental illness. He had a lot of stress in his life. And as a creative writer, of course, he was really struggling and reaching for alcohol to soothe his problems. In fact, just a couple years earlier in June of 1842, Poe came back to New York just by himself looking for work and essentially drank himself into oblivion. He had what they called an alcoholic amnesia and was drunk for several days and was later found wandering through the forests of Jersey City. So he had a very serious problem that would be haunting him throughout the rest of
2: his career and the rest of his life in New York. And, and you see this in his correspondence with his mother-in-law slash aunt, Mrs. Clem, where he writes about how little he's had to drink, or how he steered himself away from drinking. So that could have also been one of the reasons why he liked to have this maternal figure so close to him. She kept him in line.
1: So it's 1844, and they were living
2: on Greenwich Street. Right, but the get this. The lodgings in the village were too expensive. <laughs> so And, and Virginia yeah. wasn't feeling well. So they decided that June to move up the island, out of town, to get a little bit of fresh air in the countryside. And Manhattan still had a lot of countryside back then. So
1: where exactly did they stay?
2: They moved off to a farm that was owned by Patrick and Mary Brennan, uh, which, you know, this was long before the streets were mapped out. Um, but it, the, the farmhouse itself sat at about today's Broadway and West 84th Street, although their property included 216 acres of farmland. It stretched from about 200 feet west of Central Park all the way over to the river. Was this a boarding house type of
1: situation?
2: or No, the Brennans didn't even normally take on lodgers. They were a pretty well-off family. They decided to make an exception for the Poe family because Mrs. Brennan found Edgar's conversation to be most entertaining and charming, and he was already developing a reputation as a writer. According to 1903 biography of Poe, the farm was a picturesque spot. Uh, The neighboring territory was considered to be a sort of uh, summer resort where a number of people, you know, migrated in hot weather. So Poe and Virginia, who was ailing at the time, and her mother and the cat all moved to the Brennan's farmhouse. According to W.F. Gill's Life of Poe, quote, It was a lone house, high upon a bluff and commanding a grand view of the slope and of the river and it was here at the brennan farmhouse where poe started writing his masterpiece the raven although as we have found every location that poe visited in new york city makes that claims claims a piece of the raven however greg I think it's pretty clear that he at least wrote some of The Raven here at the Brennan Farmhouse because he incorporated so much of his room, his second floor bedroom, into that poem. So today's Upper West
1: Side is, in a way, incorporated into this classic work of poetry. Or at
2: least a room that no (laughs) longer exists. exists in the Upper West Side. He had, well, there was a plaster cast of Minerva, not palace, as in the poem, but Minerva down the hallway he had a handsome fireplace and a mantle, which Mrs. Brennan always kept painted black. She once got upset at Poe because she caught him absent-mindedly sort of scribbling his name into the mantelpiece. He describes the room in the poem? I I don't even remember that. Mm -hmm. Would you like to hear a little bit, Greg? By all means, and bring up some music. Once upon a midnight dreary... Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore and the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. That is it, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or "'Madam,' But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and in an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely there is something at my window-lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter. when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he Not a minute stopped or stayed he But with mien of lord or lady Perched above my chamber door Perched upon a bust of palace Just above my chamber door Perched and sat and nothing more And that is an excerpt from his masterpiece The Raven It at least gets the raven into the room Damn bird (laughs) the bird which is now in the Brennan farmhouse well Paul must have loved the countryside lots of inspiration here lots of birds lots of everything up there yeah and he would take long walks through the woods Um, he had a favorite spot a sort of rocky outpost that he would walk out to uh, that today is around Riverside and West 83rd he named this little spot for the Brennan's son Tom he called it Mount Tom in his honor and that is still its name today? But he was making regular trips right back down to New York. Well, not when he didn't have to. At least it sounds like he really enjoyed his time outside the city. Perhaps so much so that his mother-in-law found him another job. You mentioned that she was sort of <laughs> mm-hmm. his agent. She was. She wanted to get him back to work, so she found him a job at the new newspaper called the Evening Mirror downtown. He was a mechanical paragraphist, or a kind of editor. He condensed pieces. He didn't even make enough money to afford the omnibus that ran along Bloomingdale Road. So he would walk it, Greg. He would walk five miles each way to get to work, which needless to say, got old pretty quickly. So that by January of 1845, they left the Brennan farmhouse and moved back downtown to the village closer to where he was working. And it was in that month in January of 1845, when he sold the Raven to be published in the American Review, a Whig journal. So it was sold and published in a in a Whig journal, like a political journal? Well, he thought that it would be published in the American Review, but he got scooped when the New York Evening Mirror got an advance copy of it, and on January 29th, 1845, they published the Raven. And it was an absolute sensation. It was copied far and wide. It was reprinted across the country. And it basically made him famous. Overnight. By the end of February, he was sort of like the toast of the literary town. He was lecturing other poets and authors, uh, going to literary soirees. Although I think it
1: explains the literary copyright rules of the age that he was still poor while becoming a huge celebrated writer.
2: Right. And he was soon so closely associated with the poem that he was even referred to as the Raven himself. Which also makes sense because he had a habit of wearing a lot of black and kind of moping around. Well, if he wasn't getting royalties from the Raven, since that didn't exist, how was he paying his bills? Well, he was writing criticisms for a new journal called the Broadway Journal. Uh, He was also republishing his old poems and short stories. He brought them together into a book in June called Tales. He made more money off of The Raven in November when he published The Raven and Other Poems. So he was, you know, doing what he could to repurpose his content, to use a 21st century depressing publishing (laughs) term. And during all this fame, he was living in the heart of New York, right? Right. He lived on Greenwich Street in an apartment and then moved to a boarding house on today's Lower East Side at 195 East Broadway. And today that address uh, is about the location of the Educational Alliance back down near your old apartment. Oh, I know that corner well. They didn't stay long, however, in the Lower East Side. They moved up to 85 Amity Street. Amity would later be renamed West 3rd. Now, 85 Amity had a small yard, um, which allowed for a little fresh air because, of course, Virginia was still not well. And the family stayed here in the small house for eight months. But unfortunately, Virginia's health continued to deteriorate and the family looked for something new that was affordable off in the countryside where she could hopefully recover. And for this, once again, they looked north and will visit their final and perhaps most important address after this. On April
1: 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: And finally,
1: if you're a fan of the Barry Boys podcast, well, you probably love podcasts. You probably have a few in your queue and you may even love history podcasts in particular. Well, let us tell you about a new podcast that we discovered, uh, one that we love, called Historical Figures, that profiles the lives of people who changed the course of history.
2: Now, you know their accomplishments, you know their names, but do you know why they took action to change the world, how they made their goals a reality, or, or what they failed at? Historical Figures goes beyond historical facts and into historical stories. The show comes out every Wednesday, and Tom, so far, they
1: have a very impressive lineup of subjects, including Marco Polo, he's not just a game for the pool anymore, Alfred Einstein, Karl Marx, Leonardo da Vinci, and our old chums, Lewis and Clark. What's great are these shows will really give you an overview of these people's lives in a very And a very interesting, very well-produced show. And then, of course, hopefully that'll inspire you to go on, do more reading. I mean, we we produce our show with the similar fashion of hoping to inspire you to continue researching these subjects.
2: So to hear for yourself, visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for historical figures or you can visit parcast.com slash history to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot slash history to listen now. And now, back to Poe. Tom, I'm going to begin this section with a troubling
1: statistic. By the year 1800, tuberculosis had killed one out of every seven people who had ever lived on the planet Earth.
2: That is troubling. And that was 1800? That was 1800.
1: So by the 1840s, there was still no cure yet for tuberculosis or the consumption, as it was called. This is what many people in Edgar Allan Poe's life had died from. And this is what his wife, Virginia Clem, this is what she was afflicted by. He believed, like many, that to help cure or to relieve the symptoms, that those who were sick with it needed to have plenty of fresh air. So they moved out of New York and for a short time lived in the Turtle Bay neighborhood for just like a month. Where was that? Around today's East 47th Street. But in May of 1846, he moved his little family unit to a small town in Westchester County, just north of Manhattan, a little town called Old Fordham Village. Now, this little village had just been connected to New York,
2: via the extension of the New York and Harlem Railroad. An event that would transform the entire area and really give rise to development in today's Bronx. We discussed this in our Bronx mini-series last year.
1: They moved to this farmhouse in May of 1846, and it was up on a hill from St. John's College down in Fordham. Poe rented it for $100 a year from nearby landowner John Valentine. Now, that family owned much of the property, including a historic home that we call today the Varian Valentine House, which is the location of the Bronx County Historical Society today.
2: That's right. Yes, you can still visit Mm -hmm. and should. It was a very small, very
1: modest house, but it had a wonderful view and a fine porch where Virginia could sit outside and take in all that fresh air. A friend who visited the home said, quote, The cottage has an air of taste and gentility. So neat, so poor,
2: so unfurnished, and yet so charming a dwelling I never saw. So here they are way off in the countryside north of the city. Was this a good move for the family? Was it productive um, for Virginia? Yeah, I mean, the move to the
1: cottage was beneficial for all. Virginia could convalesce here. Mrs. Clem could maintain some privacy and sort of set up the household. And Edgar, who was often sick himself, would also benefit from the sort of isolation of the place. And he also had time for such activities as hanging out with the Jesuit priests, who were down at the nearby St. John's College, which is today's Fordham University. From a little tiny parlor here, with his little cat around his shoulders, Katarina on the shoulders, he continued to write for publications down in New York. He had this one extraordinary piece called "The Literati of New York," which was a series of profiles of the great writers of the day, and of course, full of juicy gossip. I mean, you always forget this part of his writing p- profile here because it <laughs> he was kind
2: of like writing a gossip column from the Bronx. It kind, it kind
1: of was. I mean, it was it was a little highbrow and more hidden kind of gossip, but still very juicy. The literati of New York appeared in a publication called Godly's Book, which was one of the most popular women's magazines of the age. So this sounds like a very productive time for him as a writer. It was, although he was not in a frame of mind to celebrate being a writer. So it seems like he would retreat into his into his parlor to write. Virginia's condition was only getting worse, and visitors who would check in on Poe at the cottage would be met with a dour scene. The two were constantly sick, and Mrs. Clem was all dressed in black. By the winter, many in the publishing world believed Poe was not long for this world, because he seemed to be as sick as his wife was.
2: Not to mention now, like before, he was still
1: battling his other demons. Well, it was on January 30th, 1847, in the small bedroom on the first floor that Virginia Clem died after a night of great pain. What's especially tragic to me is that Poe doesn't have enough money to purchase a coffin for his dear wife. A poet friend has to buy one for the family and even buys proper mourning attire for Poe and Mrs. Clem. Virginia was buried in the Valentine Family vaults, which was contained in the burial ground of Fordham Manor Dutch Reformed Church.
2: So she was basically buried in the landlord's cemetery plot.
1: Because they couldn't afford their own. So there at the burial on February 2nd, 1847, Poe wore as his cloak the very blanket which had wrapped Virginia at the time of her death. For many nights afterwards... Poe would steal away into the darkness. He would flee the cottage and he would run to the burial ground, run through the snow and throw himself
2: upon the grave of Virginia where she was buried. And this whole time, Poe himself was also sick, right? What what exactly was he ailing from? Well, they didn't have the terminology and but what they called it in the press back then was brain fever. So Virginia died in January of 1847 did Poe and his mother-in-law stay in the cottage
1: yeah they they remained there at the Fordham College for many more months with his health coming and going and wildly divergent moods like one moment he would be like I'm taking my career back I'm going to be better than ever and then the next moment he would have a terrible episode As you mentioned earlier, he was known to walk several miles into town from Mm -hmm. the old Brennan house. Well, he would continue this rather ambitious journey walking into New York. From the Bronx. From the Bronx, walking south from the cottage. And now you could walk directly from the Bronx, thanks to the construction of the high bridge, Ah. which was part of the Croton Aqueduct system. He frequently walked over, in fact, loved the high bridge was one of his favorite spots in new york as the poet sarah helen whitman wrote quote a walk to high bridge was one of his favorite and habitual recreations he was accustomed to walk there at all times of the day and night often pacing the then solitary pathways for hours without meeting a human being
2: he would walk all the way from the bronx over the high bridge to lower manhattan to offices (laughs) and it's by the way a pretty distance
1: between the cottage today and the high bridge so that alone is kind of a a magnificent walk
2: talk about stamina
1: tom there's also a rocky outcropping east of where the cottage was where poe would sit for many hours so it's also similar to mount Mount tom Tom. he liked
2: his outcroppings as
1: Mrs. Whitman said again, quote, "Here through the long summer days and through solitary starlit nights he loved to sit dreaming his gorgeous waking dreams, pondering the deep problems of the universe." This by the way, this spot is located
2: today in the New York Botanical Garden. So so he's taking long walks. He's sitting on outcroppings and thinking deep thoughts. Was he still writing? He managed to still create some of what we would consider some of his greatest works,
1: including The Bells, Yulalami, and Annabelle Lee, which, of course, many believed to be written about Virginia. There were actually many women who thought that they were the subject of this poem. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived, whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we lived with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing, my Annabel Lee. But our love is stronger by far than the love of those who were wiser than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And so all the night tide... I lay down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in the sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea.
2: Now, you sort of alluded to this, Greg, when you mentioned that many women thought that they were the subject of Annabelle Lee. You know, it's commonly thought that it's Virginia. And that would make sense because after Virginia's passing, and although Poe was deeply saddened and troubled by his loss, he still did try throughout 1848 and in his last year in 1849 to reignite some old relationships to try to find somebody to love. He was searching for love. He was writing poems for new and old loves, wandering the East Coast, delivering lectures because he was quite well-known, but really searching for somebody or, or for someone, including a Mrs. Shu who lived in New York, a Nancy Locke Haywood Richmond who lived in Massachusetts. He fell in love with a, another eccentric poet who you already mentioned, Sarah Helen Whitman, who lived in Providence. Um, and to whom he composed a poem called To Helen. He was even engaged to marry her, but this fell apart. Now, in 1849, he took a trip down to Philadelphia, where he drank too heavily and became very sick uh, before continuing on to Richmond, Virginia. There in Richmond, he socialized quite a bit. He had family there. He revisited his childhood sweetheart, Elmira Royster Shelton, to whom he proposed marriage again, he was constantly searching for companionship. And meanwhile, he was still giving lectures on poetry, including in Richmond. And from there, he headed off to Baltimore by boat, which he reached on September 28th, 1849. Now, there are conflicting accounts of what happened once he reached Baltimore in late September of 1849. He attended a birthday party. Um, He got very drunk at the party. But somehow, on October 3rd, which was an election day, Poe was found very, very sick in a polling station in Baltimore. He was delirious. He was not making any sense. And just four days later, on Sunday, October 7th, 1849, he died. A funeral was held the next day in Baltimore, And he was buried in the family lot in the Presbyterian Cemetery in Baltimore. Now, I know that there
1: were mysterious circumstances around his death. What I didn't realize was he was found in a polling station, like an election, a voting station.
2: Right. There are theories that he was a victim of what was called cooping or a sort of kidnapping of people off the streets. And this would take place around election days. These prisoners would be held and forced to vote for a specific candidate, even drugged and disguised. Their clothes would be changed. They'd have to wear wigs so that they could go back and vote numerous times for a particular candidate. It was a way of rigging elections. So there is a theory that Poe was actually a victim of this practice because he was found in a polling station not wearing his own clothing, Hmm. Hmm. A man of mystery to the end.
1: By the way, Virginia would be exhumed from the Bronx and would join Poe here in Baltimore. And Miss Clem would join him as well here.
2: Now, some of the locations that we mentioned in today's show are still around or parts of them are still around and can be visited today. So let's take a quick walk, shall we, Greg, through some of these Poe places? Let's start
1: south in some of his homes in the village here.
2: Well, unfortunately, the only house that's still around from ye olden days in the village is the house that existed down on Amity Street. Remember 85 Amity, which Mm -hmm. is West 3rd Street today? Well, that house stood for more than 150 years after Poe and Virginia moved out. And obviously, in the meantime, NYU developed and flourished all around it. So in 2000, uh, the university came under fire when they announced plans to demolish the Poe House to make way for Furman Hall, which is part of NYU Law School. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a pretty big deal back then, yeah. right. That led to all kinds of protests and demonstrations, a court order against the demolition of the building. And
1: certainly a very unacademic thing for a university to do.
2: Well, NYU is known for their drama, but obviously the community and literature enthusiasts and historians were really upset about the whole thing, because this was, after all, the last standing Poe-related structure in Manhattan. Eventually, the university compromised uh, by preserving elements of the house's original facade into the new structure. They added a reading room inside for lectures and for literary purposes, but they did have to move the whole thing about a half a block away from where it originally stood. So today, you can pass by um, if you're walking along West 3rd Street and look for 85, well, look for Furman Hall, and you'll see this older-looking facade that's sort of baked into this modern law school behind it and around it.
1: But the rooms that Poe lived in during this period are gone.
2: Correct. They There they stand nevermore. But there is the
1: Poe Cottage, which is still standing, of that, course.
2: That is a happier story. In the second half of the 19th century, uh, the house was lived in by a wild succession of people. For decades... It was just an old cottage that people lived in, and most of them were, of course, aware of the fact that Poe had lived there with his family. However, by the 1870s, Poe's reputation was really taking off, and curiosity seekers and pilgrims started visiting the home just to see it, sometimes even annoying the people that lived there. The New York Times wrote about the house and about these visitors um, in an article that was published on June tenth, 1883 which maybe you and I can read some of, some more of this in the Patreon Extra. Um, but I did like the bit at the very end. It mentions that Mrs. Clem sold... Poe's furniture, by the way, after his death to several neighbors in the area and that they were now cherished items in the neighborhood. But it also mentions that Mrs. Detchert, who lived there at the time in 1883, has been very much annoyed lately by curiosity seekers who wish to be shown through the premises once occupied by the poets. That would obviously only grow by the end of the 19th century. And in 1889, the owner of the house even offered it to New York so that the city could make it into a museum or a monument or something in honor of Poe, but the city rejected their offer. So it just continued as a private residence. A dentist moved in named Edward Chauvet, who even had his dental practice in Poe's cottage. So people would actually get their teeth pulled in the Poe Cottage? (laughs) That's very macabre. But the dentist, Edward Chauvet, did finally convince the city in 1913 to take over the house and make it a museum to the poet. And they did. And they even, in 1913, moved the house about 450 feet north across the street into a park that had been dedicated to Poe in 1902 called Poe Park. And that year, in 1913, uh, the house opened as a museum, which was taken over in 1975 by the Bronx County Historical Society, which still operates it today in cooperation with the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation and the Historic House Trust of New York City.
1: You can visit the house today. It's on the Grand Concourse. You can just take the subway there it's just a very short walk. The park is extraordinary. There are little markers on the ground as some of Poe's greatest works. There's a brand new visitor center that was built in the past few years. And the house itself offers regular tours, which I highly, highly recommend. I was just there this past weekend. And Glenn gave me a very spirited tour of the house. All one and a half floors. Half floor?
2: There's a half floor?
1: Yes, there's a half. There's, technically, it's not a full floor. Oh. You'll see what I mean. If you're, if you're tall... You're going to have to, like, duck in a few places. But what about the place where the Raven was written? What about the Brennan Farmhouse?
2: Yes, the Upper West Side Farmhouse. Well, it was demolished in 1888 to make way for an expansion of West 84th Street when they plowed it from Broadway over to the river. And this demolition took place nearly 40 years after his death. So by this point, the house was highly associated with Poe and was already kind of famous. So its demolition attracted Poe scholars and enthusiasts from all over the place, including a Brooklyn man named William Hemstreet, who managed to buy that fireplace mantle from Poe's bedroom on the second floor. And he took it home and installed it in his own home on Bergen Street in Crown Heights. Now, I should mention that today you can actually find a plaque at 84th and Broadway on the northwest corner that was placed there by the New York Shakespeare Society, and it says that this is the spot of the former Brennan farmhouse. However, there's a plot twist here, of course, <laughs> because another building across Broadway also claims that they were the site of the old farmhouse and that it was east of Broadway, not west of Broadway. So there's another plaque inside the Eagle Court apartment building at 215 West 84th Street. So did the city
1: weigh in on this important controversy of where the ho- <laughs> where the farmhouse was?
2: Well, in 1980 the city did christen the blocks of 84th Street west of Broadway as Edgar Allan Poe Street. And then
1: the mantle where the raven was written ...is now in Crown Heights.
2: No, there's a plot twist there as well. Wow. It's a a Poe story. (laughs) Lots of plot twists. (laughs) Because in 1907, Hemstreet, the man who took the mantle, decided to pass it along to a respected institution for safekeeping. So he ended up donating it to Columbia University, where it sat for about a century, uh, first in a librarian's office and then in Philosophy Hall then it moved to low library which became the admin building so then it it wound up in the 1970s being moved to the 6th floor a butler library in an office in the rare books and manuscript department is that where it currently is well no hold on because then in the summer of 2011 Benjamin Waldman who was writing a piece for the website Untapped Cities uncovered that the mantle had wound up at Columbia wrote about it on Untapped Cities wrote a piece about it for Columbia Magazine and eventually the university located it and moved it to a more public part of the rare books and manuscripts department which today anyone who has access to the library can visit and I just did two days ago it's it's quite impressive it's still up on the sixth floor you just ask the librarian in, in the rare books department you can take a little staircase up and there before you sits this old fireplace mantle thick with black paint, has a tiny little plaque that reads, Edgar Allan Poe wrote the Raven before this mantle. There's also a little note that mentions that they believe that they've located also the spot on top of the mantle where Poe traced his name and ticked off Mrs. Brennan oh so long ago. For more
1: information on Edgar Allan Poe's adventures in New York City, check out our blog, com, where I will have several images of some of the places we've talked about, including some arresting photographs of the old Poe cottage, especially during this dental period when it's actually sandwiched between other houses. It gets moved with logs in a similar style as Hamilton Grange, and so there's funny pictures of it kind of like setting uncomfortably Mm. next to more urban structures.
2: It was a numbing experience. (laughs) You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And we'd like to say a big hearty thank you to our patrons who have joined us with small monthly contributions at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P A T R E O N.
1: And as Tom mentioned, we will have an extra audio feature that's a tie-in to this show, giving a little bit more information on the moving of Poe Cottage and just sort of some of our reflections on researching this show, because we came up with a lot of uh, peculiar research snafus, let's just say.
2: (laughs) That's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
1: Well, thank you for joining us for this show and, of course, our whole month of Bowery Boys Mysteries.
2: It's been a fun couple of weeks. We hope that you've enjoyed it, and we promise that things will get a little less frightening
1: (laughs) very soon. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.